0: everybody. This is coach Stephanie and I have a fellow coach, Robert Sykes from Keto Savage on today. I'm super excited to talk to him because he does all things with figure competitions and strength and power. And they just launched this cool keto brick and they have some fabulous clothes that a lot of people at KetoCom were wearing and they all looked great. So we're going to talk about All of that and a little more. So welcome, Robert.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So first off, you had done shows before you started Keto and then you made the switch to Keto. So what made you decide to switch to Keto and um, where did you learn about it and why did you make the change?
1: So when I started competing, I I think I started in my junior year of high school and then I competed for the first time when I was a sophomore in college, I believe. And I was following a standard you know, bro dieting approach with the high protein, high carbs and the very low carbs at the end and very, very minimal fat throughout. And I did well, like I was able to get very lean. Um, I leaned out great both times, but I didn't feel very good. I mean, from a hormonal standpoint, especially as a natural bodybuilder, I mean, when you're dieting down for a exceeding period of time. And if you don't have adequate fat intake, your hormones are going to take a hit. Your metabolism definitely takes a hit going down that low in calories. And even though I was able to get really lean and in place very well at these shows, I just noticed that this was not a healthy protocol for me to follow, especially if I wanted to make bodybuilding a lifestyle and something that I was going to do well into the future. I did that. I, I learned a lot about myself in the process. I developed a bunch of eating disorders in the process. I just had very bad response to it um, metabolically and hormonally speaking and then also psychologically speaking and then after my third competition I realized there had to be a better way and I decided I was going to do carb backloading which is basically ketogenic throughout the first part of the day and then really high glycemic index carbs at night and keto was not a thing at this point I didn't know anything about keto it was not really in the internet like it is now so I was doing this carb backloading, and then I noticed I felt better before I would introduce the carbs. So I was just like, okay, I'll do carb backloading without the carbs, and you know, phase those out, and basically realized that I was feeling and performing much better in the absence of carbs entirely, and didn't really have a clue what I was doing. Like I said, keto wasn't really prominent at the time, and everybody that I worked out with, trained with, they all just assumed that it was some fluke that I shouldn't be performing as well as I, as I was without any carbohydrates, uh, because that's where you get all your energy. So, I kind of did some some digging. I stumbled upon Jimmy Moore's Keto Clarity book, and then I listened to a Tim Ferriss podcast with Dom DiAgostino, and those are the two sources that I could find at that point that were talking about keto, and then once I found those, I mean, the rest is history. I just dove deeper and deeper into the research, and then kind of did a lot of self-experimentation, and I've been keto since then, so that was about five years ago now, and then I totally changed the way I do competition preps as a result of that ketogenic diet. We can. Certainly, dive into that too if you're willing.
0: Yeah, I would love to talk about because Crystal and I were talking, and she's like referring to you all the time, like, "Well, Robert," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, so this is Robert's formula that you figured out through self experimentation and your own personal research." So let's talk about somebody who is not keto at all and mm-hmm. going from their the typical um, bro diet to contest prep, do you have different stages that you work through to go to actual contest prep?
1: Yeah. So typically people will have a a defined bulking phase, which which they're taking in just a whole bunch of calories. They put on a lot of body fat, a lot of muscle, but a lot of body fat. And then they transition into a cutting phase, which is is basically consisting of uh, increased cardio, and then pretty significant drop in calories. Some people do that drop in calories all at once. Some people try and taper it down. But usually it it comes, you know, at the the cut of fat. Like fat intake is very low, carb intake is very high, and then protein is very high. And then as you get closer and closer to show, that carbohydrate intake, you know, tapers off. And then they reintroduce carbs there at the end to help fill out for a competition uh, and look, you know, a certain way on stage. But when you do this, I mean, I've I've literally competed with people that would take out so much fat from their diet that they would start taking out fish oil pills, like just as a way to get even more fat out. I mean, you look at how much fat's in a fish oil pill. There's not that much. So when you're counting things to that instance, I mean, you're not getting hardly any, you know, good cholesterol. You're not getting anything that's going to be the, I mean, that's a precursor to testosterone. So when you start taking that out, your hormones really start taking hit, And, And that's pretty typical. People get really lean, but then, That last month or so of prep, that's when you start having these (laughs) zombies walking around. Like when people, if you know somebody that's been in a prep or uh, have a client that's been in a prep, they get really irritable there towards the end. And that's in large part because their calories are so low, they're hungry, they just don't have like their hormonal balance is all out of whack. Everything's just off. And that's pretty much the norm. Like that's just what people do. That's what they've done for years. There's lots of different tweaks they make there towards the end with regard to sodium and potassium and water intake. Lots and, a lot of times they'll cut water completely the week of the show, leading up to the show, and then they'll you know titrate it back in slowly. They're like a water load. But it's just not healthy. Like When you look at what's happening to your body, you're messing around with the electrolytes a lot. You're dehydrating yourself, and it's just not a really healthy, sustainable protocol. And that's not even taken into consideration that a lot of times these competitors are adding in you know testosterone or some kind of super supplement, so to speak, I am a natural bodybuilder, so I don't fool around with that at all, but what I did with the keto approach is, I mean, my calories would drop down. You know, Your calories are going to drop no matter what, and you're going to be hungry there at the end because that's just kind of the nature of the beast in this sport. But what I did was I left my fat intake very, very high, and I maintained a high fat ratio throughout the entirety of my prep. And my carbs were obviously very low because I was keto, but I made protein my most manipulated variable. So, I would gradually taper my protein down so that by the end of my prep, I was only consuming 65 grams of protein per day. And you look at other competitive bodybuilders, especially males, they're taking in around 300 grams of protein per day. So their philosophy is you have to have high protein in order to maintain the muscle that you've built during the off season. Whereas I argued if my protein is down and my fat ratio is high, I'm going to be producing a lot more ketones, which are incredibly muscle sparing. So by taking my protein down and leaving my fat high, I didn't really lose any muscle mass. I mean, I was able to hit PRs on my, my lifts a week or two prior to the show, which is pretty much you know unheard of. Everybody's usually going to expect some muscle loss going through a prep, but I was able to maintain all of my muscle. And I didn't have near the adverse effects. I was definitely hungry there towards the end, but I didn't feel like a zombie by any means.
0: And did you notice like a difference w- recovering from your shows that you bounce back faster?
1: Yeah. So a lot of times competitors will have this rebound phase is what they call it. And like when you're down that low in your calories, especially if you're manipulating your hormones like that, your leptin, and your ghrelin is totally out of whack. So you basically have no sense of satiety anymore. You can just eat and eat and eat. And that's obviously not good because you would, I mean, that's how I developed my eating disorders originally was I would finish a show. And then there was one instance, my first show, I put on 20 pounds in 48 hours after the show and that's not uncommon That's pretty typical uh with keto i was able to titrate calories back in but it it wasn't near this psychological disconnect like i was conscious of what my body needed and i ate food i mean i reached satiety but it wasn't like this massive disconnect in which i had no concept of hunger or satiety i was able to eat until i was full and my body told me okay that's that's good you know let's let's return to baseline and that makes going, you know, out of a prep, much more sustainable, much healthier, because you're not having to totally tax all of your, you know, your digestive organs and everything with this massive bolus of food post-show. You're able to kind of figure out what a healthy intake is and then kind of return back to a healthy, sustainable level.
0: Yeah, that's uh, interesting that you brought that up because I have not done a figure show, but I can tell you, I tried to lose weight for uh, Ironman Arizona. And I was still high carb, um, low fat, and you know, not really a ton of protein. Endurance athlete, I ate the typical diet that they recommend to endurance athletes. I kept trying to cut calories to get leaner, and I never did. And I met after the race, I did the, the race fine, but then I my hormones were really messed up, and I never, I felt like I could just eat meat and, and not feel full, mm-hmm. and I gained. I don't know if it was 20 pounds, but I gained a fair amount of weight regularly, you know, really quickly. And then I really, after that, because my hormones were messed up, I, I had some issues with um, recovery because of lack of hormones. I just couldn't bounce back. But it's so interesting that this diet that is being recommended to us for to perform well or have a certain physique, which, you know, is a form of performance is really very damaging to our bodies instead of we had talked about the idea of fitness is to, you you see somebody who looks good on a stage, somebody thinks that that person's fit and we equate in the United States, especially our Western culture, fit is healthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were on the cruise, you were talking about people who after their shows, uh, some of them had to be taken to, the emergency room or see a doctor. Can you talk a little bit about that disconnect between fit and healthy and how some of these people who look good are actually sick?
1: Yeah, it's really a, a sad reality. But you know, a lot of these people will step on stage and they're really lean, they look great. But at that point, they're generally pretty weak they're mentally fatigued and they're just exhausted and i mean i have a lot of appreciation for that because you have to take i mean bodybuilding is definitely a mental sport like you have to put yourself in a certain place to get to that level but my whole goal for bodybuilding is to you know embody health and the traditional bodybuilding cutting protocols and how you go about your dieting and how low you take your calories it's it's just oftentimes not healthy especially when you have there's coaches out there that will instruct female clients to take their calories way down below a thousand calories a day, and sustain that for months on end while doing obsessive amounts of cardio. That's just not healthy. And then, like like you were saying, I've, I've stepped on stage with competitors, and this last show I did, there was literally a competitor that had to walk off stage because he was cramping so bad in his chest he couldn't even hit the mandatory poses. So it's sad that you know some people that work so hard to reach that level. To showcase it on stage, and they're not even able to perform because their body's so out of whack. So, from an electrolyte standpoint alone, and a hydration standpoint, the beauty of keto from a prep philosophy is that I never once had to manipulate my my water. I never once had to get dehydrated. I I literally consumed about a gallon of water before I stepped on stage, whereas mother competitors were taking in you know twelve ounces maybe, and that's why they were having all these cramps and everything. Whereas I was fully hydrated, fully. My my skin was was like it should be. I was able to get a good pump. So all the things that they manipulate their water and electrolytes to achieve, I was able to achieve without any adverse effects at a greater extent than they were. I never had to cut my water, you know, make my electrolytes dangerous.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I think that that's another reason why you bounce back so quickly. If you are so dehydrated, and in endurance sports, there's a lot, a fair amount of people who end up with hyponitremia, which is too much water as and not enough electrolytes mm-hmm. and they end up having a heart attack or their body shuts down and they die so i yeah,
1: not good
0: <laughs> death is bad that's not a that's not your optimal condition of health but i imagine you were saying that people had to be taken to the hospital because of electrolyte issues and i think mm-hmm. that that's Understanding that if you're following those protocols, you're putting your your life in danger, your future health in danger because you want it to look a certain way.
1: Yeah, and see, like I don't know. To to me personally, I look at bodybuilding, resistance training as you know, it's just a very healthy thing. Like you're you're improving your tendons, your joints, your ligaments. You're improving your skeletal muscle. Uh, you're improving your your skeletal bone structure. Like it's a very good way to prolong a healthy lifestyle and when paired correctly with a well-formulated ketogenic diet I look at resistance training and keto as like the fountain of youth like if you get that dialed in I mean you're you're solid for me I want to leverage that combination so that I'm able to continue to be competitive in the bodybuilding realm for years and years to come I mean they have these master's divisions where you've got people 60 plus stepping on stage and looking respectable for their age you know I want to be able to step on stage at 60 years old, but then also compete in the open class against these people that are in their 20s and 30s and still be kicking their butt, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I think the same is to say, be said for keto-adapted endurance athletes that they, they tend to just have a lot of longevity. There's a, a gentleman, which for some reason I can't remember his name now, in his 80s and 90s, high-fat, high-meat, high like fatty meat, cuts of meat diet, And was able to keep running and breaking records into his um, late 80s. It's definitely, I think, keto is a big part of having that longevity and a fountain of youth. My uncle passed away at 87. And we had gone to the memorial and reunion uh, memorial. And uh, there are a lot of people I grew up with because I grew up in this small town in southern Arizona called Wilcox, Arizona. People have lived their generations, people I knew as a kid in high school who remember me from when I was 14, 15, were like, wow, you look exactly the same. And not exactly, you can see me, but I have some wrinkles. <laughs> but I look very similar, but there are folks that I went to school with or knew you know years ago that don't look the same. You wouldn't recognize them from when they were younger. And a lot of it is their nutrition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny to me that people don't put two and two together. I mean, you look at what you're consuming on a day to day basis every single day of your life. I mean, most people aren't fasting, so most days they're consuming something. And that has a tremendous compounding, exponential effect on their health over the course of their lifetime. And I used to be very disconnected there. I used to think, you know, these bodybuilders got the way all because of the training they did, that nutrition didn't play a part. But the more I've learned about nutrition, the more I see that. Mostly nutrition, and you look at how that's affecting you. Just compounded over years and years and years. And I'm excited to have found the ketogenic lifestyle at the young age that I had because I feel like I'll be a much better, you know, father, grandfather, great grandfather, well into my later years because I'll be around to do it. You know.
0: Oh, 100 percent true. I wish I had found it when I was as young as you. <laughs> I mean, I didn't. I found it because I was a mess. I was the negative consequences of doing it the other way. And until I was so sick and broken that I couldn't even walk, that I started looking into something else. I mean, at least I had the "Uh aha. Some people never do. The sad part of it is that ketogenic diet is not recommended by many doctors. In fact, Doctor Barry, we went to his book signing last week, and he his book "Lies My Doctor Told Me" specifically covers the lies, the Im- misinformation that doctors put out. And it's not because they're trying to be a bad doctor; it's just they're not taught anything different from you know a marketing standpoint. So, what are your thoughts about trying to get the word out to? Promote keto or like when a client comes to you and says, well, my doctor says I need to eat this low fat, you know, low fat diet or a vegan plant based diet. What do you tell them?
1: It's hard because there's just so many misconceptions about keto and it's getting better, I think, because it's gaining more prominence. But with that, you're getting a lot of bad information as well. I mean, it just blows my mind. Like, just in the bodybuilding community alone, for instance, it's it's totally believed that you cannot build muscle on keto. That's just like an oddity; that's not even possible. Which, obviously, is not true. There's just so many misconceptions about the sustainability factor with keto. People just assume that you can't possibly eat that kind of diet for years and years and years. I mean, this this is all I've eaten for the past five years. I've I've not once broken a ketogenic diet over the past five years, and I've never felt better than I do now. I feel like your body continues to adapt the longer you've been in, on that lifestyle. And for me, I mean, you look at what keto is at its core. It's just simply quality, wholesome, nutritious foods. I mean, there's a bunch of like, you know, subpar ingredients out there, but keto at its essence is just wholesome, high quality foods. And to know that, and then to hear people say and come up with all these excuses as to why they can't do this. I mean, I was at the movie theater the other day watching Lion King with Crystal. It was one of those dine-in movie theaters where you can order and the, the waitress was like, I ordered a burger without the bun. And she looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, well, what are you going to do without that bun? I'm just going to eat the burger. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, we're keto. And she's like, oh, I couldn't do that. And I'm like, why is that? And she's like, because I love spaghetti too much. You know, it's just people have these, these standards that they put in their life. And it's like, they just don't know. I mean, if she knew that having just nonstop carbohydrates coming into her life that were highly processed and, and not quality nutrient-dense foods would have a long-term negative impact on her, I would assume that she would be smart enough to recognize that that's probably not worth it. But that's just so many misconceptions that people don't get. So to combat that, the only thing that we can do is exactly what we're doing right now, having a podcast like this, you know, putting out content on our social media platforms, having good sit-down talks with our clients and educating them it's going to be from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. I mean, the governmental agencies that we have preached the you know, low-fat diet for so long, they're not going to go back on their way because they would look bad and they'd lose money. You know, it's going to come from people like us that are trying to build and promote what we truly believe in and know with certainty has had a positive impact on ourselves and our loved ones.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's just, it is going to come from the bottom up. And Dr. Barry was talking about they're going to change things in a quiet way, in a whisper, instead of a like announcement, like, hey, we were yeah. wrong. American Diabetes Association has quietly taken away pictures of pasta and those sort of recommendations. But there, there's a lot of money involved in promoting a high-carbohydrate diet from many different sources. hmm the original reason we have the food pyramid and high carbs were promoted was all from marketing. It's a sad story. I'm sure you know the story about Carl Ukin. Pure mm-hmm. uh, white and deadly. So he wrote, Carl Eukin was a professor in United Kingdom or England. He wrote this book called Pure White and Deadly, which was out of print, but you can get it now on Amazon, which is cool because I think I've, years ago i looked into getting it and it wasn't available but he said you know it's that is good for you and sugar's what's really killing you and this is when eisenhower president eisenhower was having multiple heart attacks and the sugar industry did not want to lose their profit margin from the people stopping to eat sugar so they had a very specific campaign targeted campaign to discredit Carl Yukin and to promote sugar. And there's all kinds of ads. Have you seen the ads where like, if you're hungry, have a soda and it'll quench your hunger.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: So all kinds of those um, different ads. And Carl Yukin lost his position. I believe he had a hard time finding a job because he wouldn't give up his dance, which good for him that he was a trailblazer in this area. And he ended up dying a poor man. discredited until now um, Gary Taubes writing the book about sugar and we realizing through our own personal experimentation and what we've learned that Carl Yukon was right and the um, sugar industry was lying to us and still is lying to us and has a lot of influence on many different organizations.
1: Yeah, it's sad that, you know, so much of it stems back to money. I mean, I'm, I'm a Entrepreneur myself, I'm a capitalist at heart. Like, I I understand the concepts of business and, you know, the importance of building something that's profitable that does provide an income, but not ever at the sacrifice of your integrity, you know. And I don't fault a lot of these certain companies at the onset because they, I mean, they probably just didn't know any more than we knew. Everybody's just kind of learning as we go. But when you look at what we know now, it's sad that there's so much marketing out there that is still preaching the wrong message. I mean, it's a lot more profitable to make a stickers bar than it is to market a a quality piece of hand cut steak. You know, I mean, your body's obviously going to prefer one over the other, but your pocketbook, if you're with the stickers company is going to prefer that obviously, because it's, it's cheaper to produce these food items. It's, it's the the margins are much more prominent. It's easy to market to them. I mean, you kind of play on people's cravings and emotions. So it's, it's sad that things are, have gone that direction for so long now, it's going to be kind of hard to rewind that, but, that's what we've got our work cut out for us.
0: You know, talking about capitalism, my husband has his degree in economics and my, my degree, I have a degree in anthropology, but I was an economics major before I switched to anthropology. And um, the idea of capitalism is nice that, you know, let the market decide. But unfortunately, not everybody has ethics. And actually, corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to turn a profit for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's their responsibility to, um, to produce a profit regardless of the information that's put out there. So I think I definitely agree with the market system, but I also agree with good legislation or, uh, you know, some regulation. So regulation and, and the fact that, you know, things are regulated, but you also have to count on people having good ethics and that's not, you know, doesn't always happen.
1: Yeah, not always the case, but anyway.
0: Especially when money is involved in, um, on a side note, not referring to nutrition, my sister lives in Mexico and talking about money will make people do all kinds of things. But the drug war right now is raging in there. They put uh, El Chapo in prison, who was a good businessman, even though he was a drug trafficker. And he had all kinds of networks and relationships with other drug traffickers. And the violence in Mexico was not that high. But now that he's, he's out of position, was just put in prison. All these drug traffickers are looking to gain territory. And it's just um, crazy the number of murders going on right now in Mexico. So when people say, oh, I can't understand how these companies are promoting something that they know is bad for health. Well, people do a lot of things for money. And obviously, you know, at least with the drug trafficking trade, they're killing each other without a blink of an eye. You know, it's nothing to, to shoot somebody. And the, my niece is studying veterinary medicine. And in the little town that she's in, which has a, it's a size of about 10,000, is uh, where they're having some territory wars. And they had 274 people shot. And killed in that little town in last month, in June.
1: That's crazy. It blows my mind. I mean, it's truly sad if you look and think about what all, you know, money as the as the only objective and priority in somebody's mind can can lead them to do. I mean, it's 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 discouraging if you sit down and think about it.
0: Yes, I spend a lot of time listening to economists talk just because that's how I, but I do when I'm making dinner and, and stuff. And there's a tipping point where someone's willing to compromise their ethics. And it's usually people have a base level income, like Rutger Bergman. He is a historian from one of those cold countries in, the, in Norway. And he's like, you know, if people have a certain amount of money, and there's not a lot of economic disparaging. So if some people in your society has a, have a whole lot and there are other people have nothing. You know? And so those people are more likely, it's a minimum income.
1: Mm-hmm. They're
0: more likely to do something dramatic. But if people have a basic level of income, they're less likely to compromise their ethics or money. So there's, you know, people are like, the argument against a minimum wage, well, that's going to take profits from here, whosoever, but it's almost like an insurance policy that those people also are not going to commit crimes to get that extra income, because they're just trying to survive. So if there's not enough income to survive, then, you know, I'll go and go and join some sort of cartel and not blink an eye at shooting somebody. I mean, it's horrible. because my son is getting ready to go to Guadalajara to go to take a language course, I went into binge-watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's probably not a good thing to do.
0: <laughs> to cartel information. And then I started reading all these different news reports and stuff. And it's all because of the difference between people don't have enough money to survive. Mm-hmm. So they're willing to, to do something like kill somebody. Because they're desperate. You know, desperate people do crazy things. People aren't desperate. But that's a whole side. I didn't mean to get you off track because I'm...
1: No, you're totally good.
0: But it's just good to know those economic triggers that really have a difference. And a lot of corporations, though, in the United States, obviously, they're willing to make some of those decisions that are not ethical. And there's a quote by Upton Sinclair that talks about Somebody whose income d- is dependent on them not knowing, tend not to know. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah, that's a very, very good point for sure. I like his work. He's got some of the good, good books out there.
0: Yeah, The Jungle. I think he ran for governor of California before, but he has some definitely good works. Uh, yeah. And there's some really interesting economists out there talking now. I mean, we live in a pretty crazy time. I grew up. In the 70s and the 80s, and there's like a tipping point, basically with, well, I believe, and some, a lot of economists believe that um, with Ronald Reagan, the emphasis on deregulation and a lot of funding for research was done instead of by specific groups. A lot of corporations started doing their own research and submitting articles about how healthy or unhealthy certain drugs are and certain things are and and less regulation by the FDA, less regulation by all kinds of groups. And we got some pretty interesting results from that.
1: Yeah, it's funny because there's, I mean, some people argue for more regulation, some people argue for less regulation. There's pros and cons to both. It's really hard to find a balance. And there's one thing that's for certain, it's that you can never make everybody happy no matter what you do.
0: No. And it's like there's cause and effect to everything. When Roosevelt was in office, they did a lot of public works, but mm-hmm. then it, it made growth slow down and inflation higher. So you have you know that trade-off of more stability, less growth. If you have less stability, you can have more growth. So it's um, sort of everything has a, a trade-off. Yeah. But let's go back to diet. <laughs> so diet has less of a The ketogenic diet, though, I like how Dr. Barry calls it the natural human diet because they're really the negative effects of a ketogenic diet. I don't know of any negative effects if you have normal, good digestion, and even people who've had the gallbladder taken out can still follow a ketogenic diet. So, what would you say to someone who said, Hey, Robert, what do you say if, like, for someone who says they can't follow a ketogenic diet?
1: I'd say, I mean, nine out of ten times, that's more of a psychological issue than physiological one. I mean, there's not really too many. Instances. There are some cases where people just don't respond well to a ketogenic diet. There, there have been a few of those, whether it be genetic reasoning or or, or whatnot. But there are instances. I mean, I'm not suggesting that a ketogenic diet is perfect and the own diet for everybody by any means. But a lot of people will not fully reach their potential with ketogenic diet because they don't allow their body the time it needs to fully adapt. And then they always kinda sell themselves short and sell the diet short because they say, Oh, it just doesn't work. But during that adaptation period, they're oftentimes, you know, relapsing, taking in a bunch of carbs, not really giving their body the time it needs to get there. So I think if anybody's wanting to to start the diet just to know with certainty if it would work for them or not, I mean you have to kinda just I, I recommend a rip the band aid off approach as opposed to trying to, you know, slowly Titrate into keto. I, I, I recommend just to rip the bandaid off, and then start reaping the benefits of the diet sooner rather than later. And then once you start tapping into that, then you recognize the benefits to it. And then, I mean, ideally, you don't even want to go back because you feel and perform so much better with the ketogenic protocol.
0: I agree. I know there are some genetic disorders where people have a harder time, and also the type of muscle fiber you have—slow mm-hmm. twitch as opposed to fast twitch, slow. You have a lot of slow twitch fibers, and I think it's slow twitch fibers, sometimes makes it harder to adapt. And that's a genetic fibers, your body, your muscles predominantly have.
1: Yeah, and some of that, I mean, I don't know, like I feel, I did all the genetic testing before, and according to all of my genetic tests, it said that I'm not supposed to be able to absorb and utilize fat sufficiently at all. But that's all I've been doing for the past five years and I feel better than ever carbs. So it's kind of a grain of salt.
0: Did you do twenty three and me? Is that um the one you did or did you do a different one?
1: No, I've done twenty three and me. I've done like three different ones, I believe. Oh, and really? I've had my my results. I've had my raw genetic data analyzed uh, several different times just to kind of see where the, the similarities are. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of times people will they'll will not ever give keto the, the time of day because of some supposed predisposition or genetic reasoning as to why they, they wouldn't do well with the diet. But I mean, so much that's bio I mean, you have to really just jump in, give it an honest effort. So I would recommend several months, not just several, right. several months.
0: Well, I think at least three months. Well, I tell people it takes you three months to really become well adapted if you don't have insulin resistance, but it'll take six months until you really, you're performance will improve beyond what you could have done before keto.
1: Yeah. And that's six months of strict keto, not six months of targeted or cyclical or carb yeah. ups or any of that stuff.
0: That, and they have to change the way they train. So a big beef I have are, is that people don't, they're not willing to slow down. Mm-hmm. When you switch, um, I put them on a Maffetone, Dr. Maffetone's maximum robo function heart rate training and they are all hurt that they have to walk sometimes instead of run. I'm like, you have to walk. Sorry.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once you adapt, I mean, it's, it's crazy how much better you perform than you did at baseline before. So it's like you, you may have to take a couple steps backwards. But if, again, kind of going back to the whole concept of exponential compounding factors, if you take a couple steps back, but then you get adapted, then you start living your life in a state of ketosis and training as such then you're going to have all those positive factors compounding over time. I mean your your ability to train more frequently is going to improve drastically because you're not going to have the inflammation that you did prior to keto. So you can train like for me as a bodybuilder, you know, I would be able to train squats for instance once a week because my my joints would hurt too much to be able to train any more frequently than that. Whereas now I can literally train Squats every other day if I wanted to, without any you know joint pain whatsoever.
0: Oh, awesome! Well, and the same is true with uh, endurance athletes that you can train harder and longer and, and repeat that if you become keto adapted. And what my friend Peter Defty, who's a, you know knows tons about keto adaptation, has been doing it longer than many people. So the the difference is, it's not that you recover faster; it's just that you're doing less damage on a daily basis from the
1: sugar. Mhm, Makes a lot of sense.
0: So, I think that folks don't realize a lot of times your body can only handle two teaspoons of sugar at a time, up to eight grams, depending on your weight. Some people are really big, maybe have two more teaspoons. But if you're eating more than that, then your body has to do something about it because sugar in the bloodstream is toxic. And so, it has to release insulin and then it pushes the sugar to your um, glycogen stores. But if you don't have any storage of glycogen, then it's and your cells are tired of storing it, then you become insulin resistant and all those things. But sugar in your bloodstream, through the process called um, the advanced glycation end product, glycation, where the sugar gets stuck to your red blood cells, is like needles going through your body. And it's like you're causing damage throughout your whole system. So you can imagine, especially if you put a load on the body, all that damage is going through your system all the time it makes it harder to recover from.
1: Do you test your blood sugar regularly?
0: I do test my blood sugar and I test my ketones. Um, I'll say, tell you that endurance athletes typically never have super low blood sugar like bodybuilding or other type of athletes or non-endurance athletes because the body's always making sugar through gluconeogenesis. You're not going to ever see a, a well keto adapted endurance athlete with blood sugar in the 70s or 80s like a, a strength athlete.
1: What does yours normally run around?
0: It runs about 95, 100, between 95
1: and 105. Gotcha. I noticed that when I'm stressed out, my my blood sugar skyrockets. If I have a lot of stressors going on in my life, I don't sleep uh, very well.
0: Yeah. I haven't specifically, I do know my blood sugar goes up, but what specifically, um, it's not a ton more, but what I know is my ketones go down Mm -hmm. when I have a lot of stress. You know, endurance athletes typically won't have a lot of ketones in their blood as long as it shows up on the meter. You know your body's making ketones and um, the body uses ketones for fuel. So typically an endurance athlete will have their ketones measure from like 0.3 to 0.8 maybe um, millimolar, but they're not going to ever have their ketones in the like 1.5 range if they're training. Well, if they're doing a fair amount of training.
1: Yeah, and especially like the longer you're adapted to, like I've noticed that, you know, over the past several years being strict keto, my baseline BHB reading in my blood is much lower now than it was when I first started because my body's just become much more efficient at, you know, bringing that BHB into the cells and using it as opposed right. to just floating around in my bloodstream. So a lot of people, they'll start to see their numbers go down the longer they've been keto and they start to worry, but that's not necessarily the case at all.
0: No. Well, especially with initially the blood, you know, ketones in the urine, because that's the first one that will start to change. When you first start a ketogenic diet, if you go from a high carb to low carb, you know, you're, everybody's looking for that purple pea stick. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it starts getting lighter and they have a cow. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm not burning ketones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I don't no,
1: even think I, I would show up, up on those anymore.
0: I, I don't. Yeah. And you, I'm sure you wouldn't either. But then that's just a sign your body's becoming um, efficient at burning the acetone. It's the, like the hydroxybutyrate and then acetate. And then what's the third one? The three.
1: Acetone is the, yeah, the breath. Yeah. Acetate in the urine.
0: Yeah, aceta acetates the urine. That's the one that it starts to be able to use first. Supposedly, you'll always be able to... Um, Measure the breath ketones if you're because it's an, a byproduct of the ketones being burned. And I have one of the really old, old ketone meters, and it doesn't really pick up very much of my breath ketones. But it might be because it was like the first version of a breath ketone meter. So I, I'm
1: yeah, it's meter. it's. I've kind of considered getting one of those breath meters just to play around with and experiment with, but. I feel like there's still some, they still need to do some, some research there because there's, it's just really hard to accurately gauge the ketones you're using in the body. I mean, I've played around with the different breath testers and I've gotten all kinds of skewed data. So it's hard to really know with any degree of certainty if that's tracking pretty well.
0: Yeah. I asked Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Edwards is the, um, used to be the team doctor for AD2R cycling team. And he worked with a lot of elite cyclists and I don't know if he tracks cycling, but a lot of them have definitely um, jumped on the keto bandwagon and doing very well. I was asking, well, how do you measure if someone's well adapted? He didn't say any like tests. I like to geek out on test results. So um I always want to know if they're awake. I can measure measure this, but he said, you know, you have to just go by how you feel. You stick to the diet, and if you, you know, feel good, you can go a long time without having any problems. If you have mental clarity, and one of his clients, he was saying, let him know. He's like, I am not angry anymore. I just feel better. I don't get hangry or angry, and my overall disposition is better. So I think that some of those things should not be discounted regardless of you know, a test result. Because a lot of people get would doubt at the oh my goodness, my I measure my ketones and it's a point two millimolar. I'm not in ketosis, but I feel great. I haven't had any cravings and I've been sticking to the diet religiously for months.
1: Yeah, there's de- there's definitely a lot of that. You know, a lot of people will track everything and I'm all for tracking. I'm very much pro tracking, you know, what can be measured, can be managed, you know, I track my macronutrients I track everything I, I do to the best of my ability. But like the aura ring as a as a good example. You know, the aura ring, I have one, it tells me how I sleep. Normally it tells me I sleep very poorly and it gives me a very bad readiness score. So I'll wake up and I'll check my aura ring and it says, you know, I I recommend you not doing anything today. <laughs> so I'm not very good at not doing anything. I'll oftentimes <laughs> try to prove my ring wrong You're and kidding. then have a great workout. <laughs>
0: I would have never expected that, Robert.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at sitting still. I mean, you have to kind of find a balance. So there's, there's times right. where I need to like take into account what the data shows, and then maybe go easier on my activity today. But there's definitely times where people use that to a disadvantage, and they you know sell themselves short of what they're capable of. So knowing when you need to push and when you need to take a you know tap the brakes is, is hugely important.
0: Well, I think part of it's just like. Learning to listen to your body. Mm -hmm. That's something that being keto or keto adapted is really good at doing is you're taking away other variables. You're taking the blood sugar um, cravings, the blood sugar ups and downs away. And where you're able to determine like, I really am tired today because you're not, it's not the blood sugar talking. Or if you have, you know, an Mm -hmm. addiction, a food addiction, you're like well i'm not hungry but i just had a stressful phone call and now i am so what does that mean
1: yeah that that's huge right there i mean prior to, to keto when i when i did have all the eating disorders that i did i mean i was so disconnected between when i should eat what i should eat i mean there was just no no mind muscle body connection whatsoever with regard to my food so like i would constantly be confused as to what my body needed whereas with keto i'm much more in tune with what my body is needing. And then I can kind of adjust accordingly and then know with a pretty solid degree of certainty, if I'm doing anything or consuming anything, that's going to move me closer to or farther away from my goals. So that's a peace of mind in itself for sure.
0: Oh yeah, I agree. And with the longer you do keto, whenever you deviate, I think it hits you harder because I've, I've been doing keto for 10 years, but I haven't been strict to all of that. I had a A bike race, a bike event in November every year, Tour de Tucson. And I would be super, super strict. And then after Tour de Tucson, I would be like, oh, I'm going to loosen up a little. And I usually had Christmas parties or different things Mm -hmm. to go to. And I felt horrible. And it took a while to get back into feeling good. And so after two or three years, well, I have to admit, it's probably about three years of doing that, that I was like, I. And not do that anymore. Just because it takes a such a big it's sad when you feel good all the time and then you're like, Oh, I'm not used to not feeling good.
1: Yeah, it's funny. There's like like some people really emphasize having this balance as it relates to your nutrition and the food. You know, you need to be able to enjoy, you know, a birthday cake on your birthday, or you gotta be able to enjoy, you know, going out and having ice cream with your kids or whatever. But for me it's like I don't want balance in that area of my life. Like, If I have balance there, then I'm doing something wrong. I need to be strict. I need to be disciplined. I need to be able to optimize instead of moderate. So I don't want to have some degree of balance, but then every other area of my life that I'm actually trying to focus and improve on suffers. Like to me, that's the farthest thing from balance.
0: Right. Well, and I think that if you put it in perspective is that So sugar, I think we would both agree. Sugar is poison. Although with the keto adaptation that I recommend, sometimes athletes, depending on their goals, do add some carbohydrates during training. I mean, all the keto adapted athletes in the Tour de France, they're still using carbs for race day because the way carbohydrates work for endurance training. But if you think of poison like or a drug, if you didn't have cancer, you wouldn't take chemotherapy. Venom from a black widow is poison. You wouldn't go and say, "Oh, I want poison. I want some black widow venom in moderation."
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I I don't have to be keto for health reasons. I don't have, you know, a brain tumor. I don't have any kind of, you know, I don't have type 2 diabetes. Like I actually functioned quite well from a physiological standpoint with carbohydrates. My body tolerated them well. But knowing what I know now, having carbs in my system is not going to be moving me any closer to my goals. And me being a natural competitive bodybuilder and pushing my body to the limits year after year after year, I can't even honestly say that I would see a physical benefit from, you know, targeted carbs or anything like that. Like I, I truly believe that the more adapted you are with keto and the more you, you know, focus on training accordingly and staying true to your nutrition and your lifestyle, your body responds to what variables you you bring into it. Like if you're eating strict keto, your body's going to respond accordingly, and it's going to make that level of adaptation become deeper and deeper and deeper. And I've been able to build muscle each year that goes by. I'm able to get lean when I when I want to. I perform better at each competition that I do. Like this is not a, a quick fix for me. It's not a short term thing. I'm going to continue to do this, and I'm going to do it to the extreme that it's capable of. And I'm just going to keep getting better and better and better. So everybody else can. Bounce around to the next next hype, the next uh, you know grass is always green on the other side. But I'm gonna stick to my guns and and do this, and it's gonna it's gonna do well for me.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's obviously done well for you so far, and you feel good. I think that's the biggest indicator is how well your brain works and how how good you feel.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel great. I feel great yeah. all the time. No, I don't think well, going to be a successful businessman and function at the cognitive you know, rate that I've been able to if I was consuming a bunch of high glycemic index carbs and crashing throughout the day, like I'd I wouldn't be able to function like I do now. I wouldn't be able to manage my employees sufficiently. I wouldn't be able to perform at a high rate. So I don't want to do anything that's gonna make my performance in any aspect of my life suffer.
0: Oh, I agree with you. I cannot go back to a high carbohydrate, low fat diet. I did hire a bigger competitor coach I told you about that I was going to do in a competition And I felt so horrible in those couple weeks that I was following her recommendations. Cause I was like, you know what? I she's the coach. I don't really know how to do this figure competition thing. My friend had good results and I would like to give it a try. So I said, you know, I'm just gonna follow what she recommends. I consumed the exact macro she gave me. I did the exact workout she gave me and I had very negative results. So I think that uh Maybe somebody who would have followed a a different sort of protocol for years before. Like if you were, I don't know, low fat beforehand, that maybe it would have been different. But I would not ever recommend doing that again. Like if I would only, if someone wanted to do a figure competition, I would feel good about referring them to you. I would not (laughs) feel good about referring them to most anybody else.
1: It's funny, there's a lot of, like the the term flexible dieting and if it fits your macros is pretty much the protocol that most prep coaches use. And basically the whole, you know, consensus of that is, you know, if something falls within your macros, then it's it's safe to eat. But very little consideration is given towards how that affects you hormonally, you know, from a nutrient density standpoint. Like those are all kind of afterthoughts relative to the macronutrient. And what I really like about keto is you know, the macros are very important. The fat ratio, protein ratio, carb ratio, all that's re- very relative. But a lot of emphasis is placed on nutrient quality, nutrient density. And from like a flexible dieting standpoint, or if it fits your macros, when, I mean, there, there was literally somebody arguing me the other day saying that, you know, a thousand calories of a keto brick is the same thing as a thousand calories of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And what? I'm just like, scratching my head right now. Like, okay, bro, you keep eating your Ben and Jerry's and we'll see who comes out of it.
0: No. Well, that's just crazy. It's just crazy that people think that that's okay. Even your body responds differently to different types of protein or like whey protein as opposed to animal protein or protein Mm -hmm. from liver. I think that's just justifying their want to have those things.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, that's, that's what they build their, their business and their, their brand image off of. It's like, look, I'm gonna teach you how to get ripped while still enjoying beer and ice cream. But it's like, do you really want to live a life enjoying beer and ice cream? Is that what defines you? And for me the answer is no. Like I, I want to optimize, not moderate and balance.
0: Yes, I agree. And I think that there's a big difference between optimal and just getting by. Just like the RD. Well, I don't want to take up all your time because we're coming up on time and I could talk to you forever, Robert, because I just love listening to uh, your approach to training figure competitors and um, physique athletes. And I think that anyone wanting to do a figure competition or a physique competition, I think you would be the first stop because I don't know, there are other folks who, um, to do that but uh, there's nobody's going to be able to really dial in those keto adapted macros up, in my opinion than you guys at keto savage
1: I appreciate it yeah it's uh, I take a lot of pride in doing it from a ketogenic perspective because there was not really any resources I could find when I did my prep with keto so I've kind of had to experiment and see what works what doesn't work and blaze my own trail so to speak with regards to prepping for a show with a ketogenic you know lifestyle and I feel like I've got Got it more or less figured out, so I'm I'm excited to keep learning and keep improving upon it, but I'm proud of where we've come and excited for where we're going.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. So tell folks where they can find you.
1: Keto Savage, everything. You know, you type in Keto Savage, you'll find me. Keto Brick is our food product, but uh, you type in any one of those, you'll find us.
0: And they also have cute Keto clothes. or not Keto clothes, but they're Keto Savage clothes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah cute cute's what i'm looking for too. that's that's definitely if you type in cute, <laughs> cute <savage> <laughs>
0: <words>. <laughs> that may be not the the keywords that they've optimized for <laughs> but when i was at the keto con all the folks with the, the keto savage clothes were were cute they were cute so <laughs> in my I'll
1: opinion take it. i'll take it
0: <laughs> all right so uh well thank you so much for your time robert
1: thank you